0: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Communications, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Jeff Pooley of Muhlenberg College, and I'm here today to talk to Sarah Benet-Weiser, professor at the USC Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism, about her new book, Authentic, Trademark, Uh, The Politics of Ambivalence in a Brand Culture, which was published in 2012 by NYU Press. Uh, Welcome to New Books and Communications, Sarah, and, uh, and thanks for clearing out the time to talk to me today.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, well, the book is a fascinating exploration of brand culture in which you you, you note um, uh, has long since spread from business and marketing into other spheres of social life that, in our imaginations at least, we had perceived as being left untouched. The, the self, for example, politics, religion, uh, even creativity. And the book in particular focuses on the paradoxical way in which authenticity and promotion coexist. It it argues that economic imperatives and authenticity, in quotation marks, are uh, expressed and experienced at the same time, simultaneously, in a culture of brands that, that goes deep. Um, it's a treatment that refuses to reduce the one, authenticity, to the other, um, economic drives. Uh, it's, a, it's a really provocative and uh, interesting book, and I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you about it today. Thanks. Thanks. So could you start off just by saying a little bit about your background? I mean, what brought you into media studies in the first place?
1: Sure. Um, I well, my PhD is in communication and um, I started out not really as a traditional media studies scholar, but more a feminist theorist, uh, historical materialist cultural studies type person. And um, my, my first book was on the Miss America pageant, which I considered media sort of writ large, but it wasn't on traditional media so much. I mean, I talked about the televised pageant, but it was really about public performances of femininity and public performances of national identity and how that um, worked in a, in a mediated world. My second book, um, I focused much closer on something very traditional to Media Studies, which was a television network, and I wrote a book on the cable network Nickelodeon and talked about niche channels and really became interested in the processes and the development of a brand since I I traced Nickelodeon historically um, as the development of a a branded network for kids. So it sort of led... Kind of logically to thinking more and more about brand culture, especially as I was following the economic context of, you know, advanced capitalism to neoliberal capitalism. And, and the book is about media. I have a couple of chapters that are really specifically media focused, social media focused. But the other, um, chapters are also on, like you said, creativity, which really focuses on street art, which I also consider media and politics and the way in which politics is woven into media practices and, and, and the way in which politics are practiced as mediated practices. So my focus on media is really a pretty broad look. Um, and I, um, I feel like I have a very broad definition of what counts as media. So it's not specifically broadcast or digital media, but it's, you know, the kinds of cultural practices that we engage in in our everyday lives.
0: Fair enough. And, you know, that is itself probably a reflection in part, uh, isn't it, of the UCSD, UC San Diego's heritage th- that you have uh, in which communication is defined expansively
1: yeah, yeah, I um I understand now that um you know probably kind of jokingly that the San Diego school is called the La Jolla school or the UCSD <laughs> School of Communication is called the La Jolla school, but it certainly is a very expansive view of communication and it's um it's it 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 remains and it was when I was in graduate school there a very untraditional take on communication as a discipline. And so I think that my work is a clear ref- reflection of that expansive view of what communication means and what media means and, and how these media and communication practices are always imbricated within cultural and power dynamics.
0: Great. And, you know, you mentioned that this book is your third and that the, the last one on Nickelodeon and branded kid culture um, has some obvious connections to this one but is there a story about how you came to tackle this particular topic uh what what was it that you know led you to uh, you know authenticity and brand culture
1: well there's a there's a theoretical trajectory um that that I think um, is threaded through all of my work. <laughs> I'm hoping other people see that they, that it's threaded through all of my work. It may just be that I see it, but um but the first book on the pageant was about national identity, really for women, and I was trying to figure out what were some of the cultural practices of and performances of national identity that were very specific to, to women, um unlike say the military for men or sports for men um, and then I I remained very interested in in the cultural definitions of national identity. And so that led me to thinking about how television networks were increasingly addressing their audiences through a nationalist frame or through a patriotic frame and Nickelodeon um, I, I became interested in Nickelodeon in part because they had this very successful and widespread promo campaign where they talked about talked to their children their child audience as citizens um, you might remember it it was you know the Nick nation mm-hmm. moment right and and you know they used patriotic language and patriotic logic as a way to to not only address their child audience but to actually form that audience and imagine that audience. And mm-hmm. so I became I I sort of tightened my interest in national identity and became more focused on consumer citizenship. And and how I saw that kids who were Nickelodeon audiences were addressed as certain sorts of of consumer citizens. That idea of consumer citizenship still is sort of the heart of my theoretical inquiries into into culture and into communication and media. So brand the brand book, Authentic, really is also about how consumers are addressed as citizens and how brands become the the media scape or the landscape on which we identify ourselves and imagine ourselves as particular kinds of citizens. The the idea of the reason why I, I focused in or honed in on authenticity is because our ideas about ourselves as citizens often revolve around this notion of authenticity, which is very hard to define and is defined very differently. And in, in fact, I, I'm not actually offering a new definition of authenticity in the book, but I really wanted to connect these ideas of authenticity and citizenship, um, and and explore how these ideas were sort of coalesced within. Brands and brand logic, and how we identified ourselves as citizens through not only the purchases we make, but how we are—we feel to be part of a narrative of a brand, part of the story that the brand tells.
0: Great, yeah, and and you know, you, you already mentioned the uh, authenticity theme, and you know, the the title is devilishly clever, um, and indeed has this um, uh, paradox built into it: the authentic uh, followed by the trademark symbol. Uh, and I thought maybe as a way Way into the book, since it is layered and rich, um you might just say something about, you know, that title, uh, uh, the authentic with the trademark symbol, and also in the subtitle, the emphasis placed on ambivalence, which is a theme throughout the book. Um, if you could just say something about those two title words.
1: Sure. Um, I'm actually going to start with the subtitle first, if that's okay. Um, the The idea of ambivalence is is very important in the book. It's the it's one of the core theoretical threads that I try to you know maintain and explore in each chapter. And the reason why I think it's important is because I set out to write this book as a sort of Intervention, I guess, um, into into the the academic, popular, political, cultural debates over whether or not. We are, you know, kind of liberated by the media, um, sort of a utopian viewpoint, or whether or not the media is something that controls our every action and is is just about sort of surveillance to the point where we can't really, we don't really have any agency. And this is, as you know, as a communication scholar yourself, this is a debate that continues to really shape a lot of uh, a lot of the academic explorations into media, it really shapes what what we can see in digital media spaces and broadcast media spaces and so on. And so I just felt like while I understand both sides of this debate, I also feel like it's sort of paralyzing for us in terms of moving a conversation forward and really trying to think about what's at stake in living our lives through brands, for example? What's what's at stake in living our lives or constructing our identities in social or digital media? And I don't think you can get to that question, that stakes question, Mm -hmm. if you maintain this binary that it's either, you know, consumer is empowered through the media or consumer is suffocated by the media. So I wanted to... Right, something that explored sort of the liminal spaces between those two points on that continuum. And what I found was that it made the most sense to think about culture as an ambivalent space, as something that is, you know, that is, can be about both agency and control simultaneously um and that that simultaneous you know when we're positioned as both consumer agents and we're controlled by consumer culture that provides or that you know gives a space of ambivalence and so i really want to explore that um in the book i have to say that i started the project a little bit more optimistically than I ended the project mm-hmm. um, you know after doing after many many interviews with brand marketers and I did a sort of mini ethnography um, at an ad major ad agency um, and and talk and gave you know had many interviews at the ad agency and and also just did a lot of research on these different campaigns i I think the book is is more critical than I than I imagined it would be at the very beginning but 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 I really do think that the key for us in thinking about what it means um, to live our lives in neoliberal capitalism, what culture means, what it can mean, is about being critical of these things, but also recognizing that these are ambivalent spaces, that they're not determined. Spaces—they're not determined by consumer agency or free will or control or corporate hegemony—and so I think we need to be um, a little bit more layered in our analysis. And so that's that's why I I focused on ambivalence, if that makes sense.
0: Completely. Um, yeah. Okay. And, and then in terms of the authenticity idea.
1: Yeah. In terms of the authenticity idea, um, what I when I started interviewing. Marketers, and then started just talking to people about this project and reading marketing books and and um, tons and tons of marketing books and <laughs> and looking at these different brand campaigns and from the ground up and how they were formed. I realized that so much of, you know, so much of brand, the, the story of the brand as it's formulated by marketers, it revolves around this idea of authenticity. So they talk about, the brand marketers talk about establishing, um, you know, engaged authentic relationships with consumers. They want to make a consumer feel like this is an authentic relationship that he or she may have with the brand. Um, the authenticity for them is a really key term, but I also was struck by the fact that authenticity was a really key term for those people who resisted brands mm-hmm. and resisted corporate culture and and the whole specter of selling out and you know, if you buy into this you're you're no longer authentic. And so authenticity was sort of marshalled as a key term or a key concept on many different from many different perspectives in within consumer culture and within consumers themselves. And so I started out to think about what it what is you know, what is the role that authenticity plays and the reason why i you know gave it the little tm the trademark is because my my argument in the book is that authenticity is a branded concept and again i'm not making a new argument about authenticity and i'm certainly not offering a new definition this book is not like like, this is not the book to read if you want to figure out what authenticity means necessarily as a concept but i what i do want to say what i did want to say in the book is that authenticity works in contemporary culture as a brand more than anything else.
0: Great. And that really does come through. And you you make an argument that, you know, authenticity, ironically, in a culture of selling seems to carry even more weight um, and that the the two are blurred in such a way that the blurring is even tolerated. um, Right. uh, By both, uh, not just marketers in a way that might be predictable, but even by agents, uh, consumers.
1: Yeah, it's tolerated. It's expected. Um, um, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, I, I, have always come from a position where, um, I have resisted any sort of cultural dupe argument where, uh, where cons- audiences or fans or consumers or whatever your, you know, particular site may be are somehow duped by culture. Um, Consumers aren't duped by branding either, right? They, they, they expect the uh, idea of branded authenticity to come through in their brands, and they tolerate it, even, at, even if they still kind of maintain a, an idea of selling out or some sort of binary where there is some pure, pristine space outside of consumerism. But as you said, they tolerate the brand of authenticity. We come to expect it. If something doesn't have an authentic feel to it, even when we know that that's part of the brand, even when we know that that's part of the marketing message, you know, we're disappointed. So I kind of wanted to explore that 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 affect and that sentiment.
0: Right. Well, it really comes through. In fact, in the the very first main substantive chapter, you deal with these issues. It's it's really looking at um, Dove's advertising over the years, but especially the Dove campaign for Real Beauty, Um you're using that as a kind of case study to look at branding in terms of of gender and commodity activism, and this campaign, which you know in in many ways is is a perfect uh, example of of kind of a branded authenticity, where you know the Campaign invites you to download your free self esteem tools as you write about um, here in this chapter and you do it really throughout the book, but you develop this idea that the commodity is distinct from the brand and that you know the process of commoditizing is not the same as um, branding or the or at least the brand culture and so um, right I mean maybe you could explain using this example of Dove that you know why brand culture is not just corporate appropriation?
1: Sure. Um, The the Dove chapter also is kind of the only chapter in the whole book where I use a specific brand. Uh, you know, the book isn't about, it's not necessarily about specific brands, right? It's not about Starbucks or, or about Apple. Um, it's more about branded culture, brand culture, and um, brand logic and brand language. But that chapter, I wanted to show historically how, um, how we move from the process of commodification to a broader, more more diffused landscape of branding. And it seemed to make sense to use... A um, brand that is wildly successful and that has a history in terms of um, advertising marketing, and branding and so Dove um, seemed to be the sort of perfect um, brand name to, to to you know use as a as a lens or an optic to get a wider um, view of these different historical changes so I look at Dove in the 1950s and talk about how you know this was a very kind of broadcast model where where the company really targeted an ideal consumer who was white and middle class and female and then moved to the you know late capitalism period and niche marketing period uh, starting in the 70s and going up to the 90s and looked at an example of Dove and how they – Targeted a different sort of consumer and how they started this trajectory towards authenticity and the idea of intimacy with the consumer and engagement that then becomes a comp- you know the buzzword in marketing in the 21st century, right? Engagement marketing and authenticity mm-hmm. and so on. So I wanted to use that moment of niche marketing and targeted consumers um, of the 70s and the 80s to show that this you know it's that there was there is a history here towards brand culture. Brand culture isn't in an it, it, the way i 'm talking about it isn 't a sort of inevitability, right There are a lot of different factors that go into place that lead up to um, where we are now in terms of brand culture and so I focus in the in the last part of the book on neoliberal capitalism on engagement marketing on affect as a marketing tool and look at the way in which Dove then sent, you know creates these viral ads um, these little films that are shared in media and digital media and how they have uh, workshops and um, this new self-esteem fund so they get into sort of cause marketing or or, social responsi- or socially responsible marketing and all towards this kind of co-production with a consumer. And so the reason why... I think that this is a very useful way to understand the differences between commodification and branding. To get back to the first part of your question or the last part, um, is because commodification is is sort of a process, right? You 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 take something that hasn't previously been commodified like a racial identity or, you know, a gender identity, and you use the processes of commodification to make that identity into a commodity to sell in a market. Branding is something that is much um, more broadly conceived. It is a landscape on which we construct our identities, um, in which uh, we make purchases, but we also make decisions about our lives, depending on you know our relationship to brands. It is a more diffused process rather than just a sort of mechanism, uh, an economic mechanism. So what I'm trying to what I'm trying to do in the book is is again to say that branding is not just an economic tool, it's not just an economic me- mechanism. It is part of culture.
0: Right. There's a kind of excess of meaning, as you put it, at at some point. And and it's not in this chapter, but in a later one, you quote Raymond Williams, uh, who is himself defining his term structures of feeling. And he uses the phrase social experiences in solution, where in this case, solution is in in the kind of referred to in the chemistry sense. right? Uh, And and it does seem to... uh, get at what you're talking about now, the way that brand culture is permeated, the broader culture in such a way that it's not merely economic.
1: Yeah, I'm I think I, I've I have always found Raymond Williams useful um in my work and I find his idea of structure feeling you know, especially useful. Um and that that notion that it is, you know, a a context that is created in solution like chemistry where you have different elements mixed together and in that mixing and merging um there a, a new context is created. So it's not just, you know, so when when economics merge with culture in the in the way a brand culture in in the current moment, you have um, not just commodification, but you have something that is about cultural practices and everyday life and economics, and together they form a different sort of context, and I think it's that context that we need to contend with in order to really understand that bigger question of what's at stake in a life lived through brands.
0: Great. And, you know, in this chapter, you're also kind of making a distinction between the niche marketing. You've already referred to it a little bit um, on the one hand, which, you know, you describe as being kind of up through the late 20th century and uh, um, this more kind of brand culture period in the early 21st century, which, which, as you say, involves more um, engagement and a kind of blurring between producer and consumer and the uh, all the immaterial labor that we as consumers are doing. Um, And so if you could just explain the periodization uh, that you engage in in this chapter.
1: Yeah, um, I think that, you know... um when, you know, again, this, this is also sort of residual from my earlier work on Nickelodeon where I was really looking at niche marketing and niche channels and, um, and, and thinking about what was happening and what Joe Tarot called breaking up America, right, mm-hmm. into these different markets, um, that were discrete markets, right, that had discrete, uh, demographics and, and consumer, um, citizens and everything else. And, and what I see as a cha- niche marketing certainly hasn't ended, right? I mean, cable television is still, um, a very important media form. Um, we see, uh, niche marketing all over the place. But what has extended, and lots of people have written really, you know, wonderful, um, work on this, what has extended, I think, within neoliberal capitalism within, in the current moment is that niche marketing has become more, more individualized. And more customized. So, if niche market is, let's say, niche markets are about masculine, you know, the, the, the the niche market is about male academics. That's that's a particular group that's specific, much more specific than a broadcast model, but it still includes quite a bit. What I'm trying to say in brand culture is that the the, the targeted audience is you, Jeff Pooley, mm-hmm. right, as an individual, and, and you are going to get ads that are customized toward, to you. So with Dove, for example, they have this one video that features a girl named Amy, and she's hiding in her room because she doesn't like her appearance. And there's a boy outside knocking on her door. And at the end of the, and she doesn't answer the door because she's too embarrassed about her appearance. And at the end of the video, the tagline says, you know, Amy can count 12 things wrong with her appearance today. Um, her friend can't count any or something. There's a way in which you can substitute your name for Amy's name. Mm-hmm. so that it becomes Sarah can count 12 things wrong with her um, appearance and that I think that is the crucial um, change again Joe Tarot and his work on marketing mar- uh, uh, maps this terrain out as well and he moves from breaking up America to his newest book The Daily You right which is about actually the, the sort of relentlessly individualized message of neoliberal marketing and that's what I'm trying that, that I think is a key difference in in. That, in those, that kind of historical period between niche marketing and, um, you know, uh, individualized marketing or individualized networked marketing. So I, I, it, it want, certainly niche marketing hasn't ended, um, but it also has led to a different sort of marketing and a different sort of capitalist context
0: great. And, you know, in, the, in the, the chapter that we're just discussing, you uh, approach the topic from the point of view of of a brand. But the, the next four chapters, you really are looking at these spheres of social life that have been thought to be outside the market's purview. And, you know, one of them is the self. And it's, in fact, the, the, the next chapter, you look at um, the way in which, I think it's a really terrific chapter. Um, Thank you. The way in which the the self is a kind of brand, particularly for young women, and you're focused on gender here, um, and and that the brand is often involving visual self-performance on you know, uh, n- new sites like YouTube, uh, relatively new Facebook, and that in the chapter, you're discussing the kind of complex ways in which f- post-feminist ideals are mixing with... Media making savvy and with uh, the, the wider branding culture. And so, if you could just perhaps talk about, you know, maybe the example of Facebook self performance and, and, and why young women are the focus.
1: Young women are my focus in that chapter and actually they're the focus of my more recent work as well um, because I'm, I'm very interested in how the discourses, as you just said, the discourses of what has been called post-feminist culture have um, are deeply interrelated with the discourses of neoliberal capitalism, which in turn are deeply interrelated with the discourses of participatory media. And I, I really feel like these the, the entanglement of um, these different sorts of practices cr- have created a really shifted space for young women and girls to create self identity and and um, and I don't and I'm not particularly um, complimentary of that space that has mm-hmm. been created I'm, I'm worried about it and I'm critical of it and so I really wanted to focus um, that chapter on that the, that entanglement of those different discourses and so that's why I focused on young women and girls it certainly does uh, self-branding is something that men and boys participate in all the time. It wasn't an exclusive focus, but it is really my interest and what I'm, I'm really particularly worried about in the current moment. And, and And so in terms of self-branding as a practice, in terms of something like Facebook – the reason why, again, the reason why I feel like these are spaces that are ambivalent spaces is that there are lots of ways in which Facebook can be an incredibly useful tool for people to not only craft personal or professional identity, but also to to network with friends, to network with communities, to um, spread messages, political messages. You know, So there's lots of different ways in which this site is used. It is, I think... Structurally, a site that is about the individual and about about you know creating a per- personal profile, which is what I talk about in the book, and what that means to create the self in digital media um, is is sort of my question and my focus in that chapter and and you know what i'm arguing is not is is not that there's some sort of insidious or or perverse desire on the part of every individual to create a self brand but what i'm what i am arguing is that the structure of of new media spaces like or digital media spaces rather, like Facebook, create a context and an environment where it's almost impossible to not create a self brand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whatever you post on on Facebook, it can be as anti corporate as you want. It still builds the brand of Facebook. Right? You are still within operating within a branded space. And 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 if your tools, if the tools you have at your hands are also part of this brand culture, then it's you know it it seems quite logical that what you would be doing is is being is establishing your own identity in terms of a self brand rather than something else, and so that's what you know you know and, and Facebook is just one example, um, you know among so many right I, I also talk about YouTube in that chapter clearly I don't talk about Twitter but clearly Twitter is um, is very you know part of this whole landscape as are other social social media sites as our blogging uh, you know blog spots you know the entire sort of digital media spaces are often organized around how to build a self brand and I worry about that because I worry about the language and the logic of branding, and I think that it becomes it becomes easy and convenient and um, sort of um, axiomatic for us to think about ourselves within this branded culture. And I want us to just stop and pause and think about what it means to think of ourselves as products instead of people.
0: You do, though, point out that there's a kind of paradox involved in even making a a kind of point of resistance, like posting an anti-branding statement or an anti-Facebook statement to Facebook, in that the space itself is branded and... The activity of the posting can be read as a kind of branding move and I mean indeed, in the next chapter it 's a really I- interesting look at street art and you're you 're looking at a couple of cases like Banksy and Shepherd ferry where indeed these figures are presenting themselves as subversive, um, playing up kind of illegality and the political uh, dissent in some cases, and certainly their uh, authenticity uh, coming from the street. Uh, But at the same time, they are adept self-branders, and they manage their attention um, very carefully and, and in the process have helped kind of Create a, a, an interest in street art as something like a kind of commodity itself, and so this chapter is really really fascinating. But I mean, th- this tension between uh, um, you know s- subversion and uh, authenticity on the one hand, and self-branding seems to come out really clearly in the case of say Shepard Fairey, and you could talk about that, um, uh, and, uh, but in connection with. What the chapter describes as this move to uh, promote a creative city, um, often with Richard Florida's creative class argument as backdrop, and the way in which, uh, in, in this case, kind of creativity itself is part of brand culture.
1: Yeah, uh, what I'm what I'm trying to do in that chapter is really build on um, on some arguments um, that others have made, Angela McRobbie in particular, about this sort of meritocratic discourse that everyone can be creative. And this is Richard Florida's line as well on his consulting website and his books and everything else that, that innate, you know, that people have innate creativity and it just needs to be brought out in these particular ways. And, and then we can all benefit from it. And I, what I wanted to do there, what I wanted to do in that chapter is to say that actually this, this sort of, you know, anthem of everyone is creative is it may be true, but everyone can, can't be branded as creative. And so what I wanted to do is talk about how, you know, cities are increasingly... Organized um, within public-private partnerships, so it's not just federal or state funding, um, city funding to rebuild cities or for uh, gentrification or for uh, safety or for sanitation. It's a public-private co- uh, spa- uh, partnership. So, so city fund city planners are are partnering up with corporations to create things like city walks and um, and you know a uh, tourist revenue spot. And, and the creative, what, what Florida calls the creative city. Within that, you want to have something that feels edgy and urban, but is also kind of, you know, can exist within the confines of the branded city or the branded create, creative city. And so certain street arts artists are um, able to be successful at that. Banksy and Shepherd Ferry and s- some others are part of that group where they have enough edge and enough sort of subversive history that they can be um, – that, that they give that creative city its urban feel. They give it its authenticity, right? But at the same time, they're corporate-sponsored. You know, they're Cadillac sponsors – Shepard Ferry, as well as other people's. Banksy's, you know, work sells for hundreds of thousands of dollars in auctions. Um, uh, You know, it... it, Automatically raises the sort of revenue value or the value, the cultural value of a an urban building. He is a brand in and of himself, um, and 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 even though he, you know, has this whole sort of mystique personality, no one knows really who he is and and all that. His brand is based on that unrecognizability. He cultivates that very carefully, right? So, so these are people who are able to. Um, use their subversion and their creativity in a way that makes them sort of palatable as a brand. And my point there is that creative cities are not they, – they are about a – Particular kind of racial grammar, if you were, if mm-hmm. you will, and in a class grammar. So, mm-hmm. so it's not about immigrant populations. It's not about um, African American street arts, street artists, really. Although clearly there are some street artists who are sponsored. But it is about particular kinds of street artists that 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 kind of merge well with the creative city brand. And so this idea that everyone can be creative may be true, but not everyone can be branded as creative. And that's what I'm kind of interested in in that chapter.
0: You have this fantastic reading of Banksy's involvement in a um, Simpsons credit sequence. Uh, And, you know, if you could just reprise that a bit and describe how how that example, you know, uh, uh, fills in your argument.
1: Sure. I mean, that is, you know, this this is uh, where Banksy was uh, was hired to write the storyboards for uh, an opening sequence of The Simpsons that in in particular called attention to outsourced labor and in particular outsourced labor in Korea and other Asian nations and and cultures and and. and he, you know, the, so so he was he, he was used in part, at least the sort of conventional folklore goes, because the creators of Simpsons were upset with Fox for outsourcing labor. And so they wanted to do like Simpson, The Simpsons often does. They wanted to sort of para, make a parody of this and a critique of this and call attention to it. And so Banksy was used as a person who could add this sort of creative layer to this, which he did. Right. But he also made sure that his name was visible, you know, on the billboards in Springfield, you know, in the opening credits. You know that it's Banksy. You you know, you have uh, Bart Simpson and his chalkboard writing instead of, you know, I will not skateboard. He's saying I will not write on walls. There's, you know, a way in which it, it really solidifies the Banksy brand that those opening credits, which doesn't necessarily take away from the social critique that that opening those opening credits are making against, you know, in terms of outsourced labor and, um, and inequitable labor practices and, and, and all the rest, right? But it is also about establishing Banksy as a brand. And those two things exist simultaneously.
0: You know, this chapter and the chapter before, especially, you've elaborated a kind of critique uh, that doesn't depend on there being a strict separation between agency and cultural dopedom, let's say. Um, But you nevertheless are advancing a critique. And and this is true, too, in the the fourth chapter where you're looking at politics. Uh, And here you're interested in ways in which the consumer movement has shifted over time. And, and, you know, maybe you could talk about how you you argue it's become more individualistic, that the focus has uh, um, shifted to the consumer as the beneficiary of the activism that you're Mm -hmm. discussing. And, and, you know, the bottled water example was really interesting. And uh, you also discussed urban farming.
1: Yeah, I mean what what I'm you know trying to show there is that is that you know part of you know, in in every chapter I really try to give a sort of sense of the history of these these branded cultural Dynamics, so you know the history of street art and the history of of um, broadcast media and the dev chapter, and in this chapter, I really wanted to show that there has been a shift in consumer movements there 's long been a very vital consumer advocacy or consumer movement um, or consumer politics in the United States. But But there there has been also a sort of recognizable shift so that consumer politics in, say, the mid-20th century were really revolving around access to the market. So they're revolving around inequity. Um, You know, who had access to the market and who didn't? And how can we create a consumer market where everyone um, has access to that market? In in the current moment, consumer movements are really revolve much more around rather than access or inequity, around individual choice and what are the individuals' options for di- making different sorts of purchases or different ha- having different sorts of consumer access, rather than a more widespread critique of class inequity in the United States, and so. What I wanted to talk about that, you know, in terms of brand culture and in terms of how activism itself has become sort of a social commodity, and this is a uh, also a, a theme that I pick up. Um, in a co-edited volume that I co-edited with Rupali Mukherjee called Commodity Activism where we talk about this idea that social action is commodified and branded in the current uh, neoliberal moment and I and that's really what I'm focusing on in the chapter on politics and I wanted to choose you know there's so many different I could have chose you know I could have talked about the Obama brand or, or the Republican brand or you know there's so many different ways to talk about branded politics I I wanted to talk about bottled water because it's it's actually sort of something that so many people in the United States uh, consume. Mm-hmm. And so many of us, including myself, right, are completely, you know, do this completely automatically. And, um, and we actually live in a country that has, by and large, potable water for us, um, unlike many other places. But we buy bottled water, we expect bottled water. Um, we are seen as not good parents if we don't give our kids bottled water. You know, um, it is something that that has it is a it is Truly, a manufactured need, in um, in the sort of traditional sense, and so I wanted to talk about how that works um, to create brand stories like Aquafina and Evian and Perrier, and and how that becomes a branded. Culture a branded context for a certain sort of politics because it you know the bottled water industry is spins on things like safety and recycling and good for the environment when we know that all that plastic is really not good for our environment um, and so I chose that as a sort of case study to look through how this shift in consumer advocacy uh, takes place from something that is about inequity, its class and and um, and economic inequity to something that is more about individual choice and individual consumption. And the urban farming um, example, I also wanted to talk about in terms of how um, politics are, when politics are branded, they're also branded along um, racialized and class-based lines. And so urban farming is something that, say, you know, I live in Los Angeles. Immigrant farmers um, have been uh, practicing urban farming for years and years and years in this city um but what we when we have a focus on it it's the things like farmers markets and um whole foods markets and uh the different ways in which you know i use this example in the book about how there's rent a farmer where you can you know have someone come and 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 plant you know organic vegetables in your garden and then you can have them in your home and 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 that there's a way in which you know only certain sort Uh, only a certain definition of urban farming can be branded. And so that chapter is really about how politics, not every sort of politics can be branded. There are politics that can be branded and that's really important and I mm-hmm. think does you know, the, the branding, environmental branding, green branding has done a lot of good, right? But it's also something that can be branded and we need to pay attention to that. What can't be? What is left out of branded politics and why is it left out? What are the reasons why it's left out? And I think those are the sorts of the questions that we need to be asking.
0: Good. I mean, and and finally, in this last chapter uh, that that deals with uh, these fears of you know social life that had been thought to be outside the market, you look at the way in which brand culture has suffused religion itself, uh, and you you look both at prosperity Christianity, which is absolutely fascinating, uh, and there's a lot of rich historical context. It's a great chapter. Um, but you also look as your second kind of case uh, at New Age spirituality and the ways in which a kind of, I don't know, kind of class-based Orientalism uh, um, appropriates sort of Eastern religion uh, in, in, in what is kind of called in this umbrella term uh, New Age spirituality and, and the way in which it, it, it is quite similar to uh, some of the uh, bottled water and mm-hmm. urban farming discussion you you bring up in the previous chapter it um, mm-hmm. is a kind of space for personal branding. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I I wanted to end the book with that chapter because I think that for for people who who um, who have a religious identity, I think that. Um, authenticity is an enormous part of that, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and for people who have a religious identity, I also think that um, that binary that I try to tease out in every chapter between, you know, this idea that somehow there is a pure space of identity or pure authentic space that is separate from a commercial or corporate space, I think religion really uh, taps into that, right? Mm-hmm. That there's this way in which it feels outside of the crass commercialism of our everyday lives. It's where we go to escape from that, mm-hmm. right? It's where we go to escape from crassness, where we escape from commercialism, from strategy, from, you know... Um, uh, uh, kind of malicious intentionality it's where we go to find our authentic selves and i don't want to question any you know again this chapter is not about questioning anyone's faith or questioning faith at all but it is um about you know saying how these ideas of authenticity and religious identity have actually been part of the market for many many years and you know so i start off with early you know sort of um prosperity preachers and early preachers who were you know PR people and ad people um, and that's how they got the message across and and there's this way in which um, authenticity was branded in a religious sense for you know many many years so there's this you know idea of what Diane Winston calls, you know, face in the market. That these are imbricated practices rather than separate ideals or separate spaces. And so, I wanted to use those two examples: prosperity, Christianity, or health and wealth gospel, and the rise of the megachurch and the and the prosperity preacher, um, and this new age spirituality, which is about sort of escape from all that, escape from materialism, escape from, you know. Um, uh, consumerism but only those people who have the material means to do that escape right so only people who actually have the financial means to afford something like a yoga retreat Mm -hmm. right are are the ones who can benefit from this this you know escape from materialism so i wanted just to point out some of the contradictions there
0: well, I thought that worked really, really well. And, it, you know, is a fitting end to the book. I mean, it, uh, the ambiguities involved in religion, which, as you say, is this space that's set aside in the culture as being unquestionably uh, um, outside the market and authentic. Uh, the way in which you uh, make that much more ambivalent works very well, and it's a fitting end to the book. Um, and, you know, and I wondered if there was anything that we didn't have a chance to talk about, an idea that threaded through or concept or uh, an example that you want to um, talk about
1: um, n- no not really in terms of, of the book I mean I, I you know I um the ideas that I put forth in, in the book are obviously, you know, sort of selective, as all of our ideas are. Um, and there are so many different ways in which we could talk about brand culture that I don't talk about in this book, right? Um, and I really just, I really wanted to focus on on uh, this this idea of ambivalence, the idea of authenticity as a branded concept as a branded uh, dynamic or cultural artifact rather than something that um, somehow sits outside of consumerism and outside of capitalism. Those are the kinds of things that I really wanted to bring forth in the book and and talk about. And, And for me, in doing the research, these areas—the self, creativity, politics, and religion—were the ones that kept coming up um, as important sites for those for for those sorts of contradictions um, and those ambivalences. And so that's you know why I focused on them. But there, there's you know as as you know, there are many different ways to approach brand culture, and this is just sort of my take on it
0: and so given that fact uh you know is your next project going to you know take a a thread that you started to develop here or or an uh, idea that you came across while you're working on this and expand on it or what what do you have planned
1: um well thank you for asking um i i am i have been working on um something that is sort of an extension of this um i i I've found that chapter two on branding the self and girls and young women and post feminism both the most frustrating chapter to write and the most I was the most passionate about, um, you know, um, in terms of my own uh political and theoretical leanings. And so am I r I'm 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 kind of extending that chapter, or those ideas that I, I put forth in that chapter. And I'm looking at markets again, and I'm um, situating these markets for girls and young women in what I'm calling an economy of visibility. So rather than branding itself, I'm looking as at visibility, especially in digital spaces, as a sort of economy. And I don't want to use economy and market. Um, exactly the way they're using economics, mm-hmm. right, because I'm talking about culture and there isn't a neat fit. But I also don't want to use them as mere metaphors or as sort of sexy cultural studies terms, right? I want to think about how markets are formed, how consumers are identified, how cultural and economic value is deliberated um, in these different markets for girls and, um, in, in, again, this economy of visibility. So I've written some um, Some stuff on what I'm calling the market for self-esteem and talked about how self-esteem becomes a particular kind of commodity, a particular kind of market where an industry develops around this idea of self-esteem that has a very particular target, a very particular demographic in terms of white middle class girls um, and women. And then I also am looking at the market for empowerment and thinking about how empowerment has been used um, as a sort of empty or floating signifier, right? That we're not really sure what we're empowering girls to do. We keep saying we have girls empowerment groups, we have nonprofit organizations, we have corporates, corporations that are devoted to to empowering girls, but to do what? And so that's kind of what I'm exploring in that. And what does it mean to have empowerment in a digital space if – say, your reproductive rights are being taken away mm-hmm. in the United States. You know, what, are, wh- what is empowerment about and who does it empower and through what vehicle is it empowering? Is it through the body and that sort of thing? And so um, I'm looking, again, at these sort of different markets. So it's not about brand culture per se, but, of, but it is about uh, neoliberal markets. And it's, for me anyway, it seems like a kind of logical extension from authentic.
0: Absolutely, and the idea of a kind of market invisibility, uh, particularly around gender, um, uh, just captures something about what's going on right now, um, and and the, the the gendered aspect of it in particular.
1: Yeah, I think that you know, I think that you know the the the. It makes sense for us to pay attention to the Time magazine cover of a couple of weeks ago when you have a young girl taking a selfie and mm-hmm. the whole culture of selfies and what that means. And I also am doing some work on the market for likability mm-hmm. and this idea of liking something, thumbs up, giving it a heart. Um, I just read, you know, I've been collecting 17 magazines, which is this whole other sort of torture, but, um, <laughs> I, the, on the latest 17 magazines, it, it, 17 Magazine that has an article about um a, that has ha, it's hashtag cute hairstyles is the name of the article and then it gives you a bunch of different hairstyles as a teenage girl to play around with that are quote guaranteed to give you tons of likes mm. that whole culture of what of, of striving to get likes and, and, and what like means what the like button means on Facebook and on Instagram and everything else is really interesting to me and I think it's a very gendered concept And so I want to explore what likability means in the current context.
0: I mean, that sounds so deeply fascinating. And, you know, just as as an example of this, uh, maybe a a kind of illustration in the culture, I don't know if you saw the uh, New Yorker post about Lindsay Mills, uh, Edward Snowden's girlfriend, uh, and and her uh, blog, her exhibitionism on the Internet, as the headline had it, the ways in which she Displays herself both sexually and in other kinds of self-expressive ways, uh, um, even as her boyfriend is complaining about the kind of uh, privacy invasion that's going on in, uh, uh, you know, in the government sphere. So right. it's a, it's a kind of perfect distillation of these different gendered expectations.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I do think that I, obviously the economy of visibility is is something that is, you know, uh, uh, that is not just something that applies to women, right? But being visible um, in a particular sort of way like Snowden's girlfriend, is something that is seen as empowering um, and is something that is seen as likability um, in a way that is not the same for men and in a way that actually, I think, distracts us from, again, thinking about the more structural violences and structural policies that are going on now um, to – to, you know, dismantle Roe v. Wade, dismantle reproductive rights for women, um, you know, domestic abuse rights for women, and and that sort of thing. So there's there's this way in which um, visibility and empowerment means something very different depending on gender.
0: Great. Well, I mean, the, the project sounds really wonderful, and best of luck with it. Thanks. And Yeah, and thank you again uh, for taking the time, and uh, congratulations. The book, I should mention, won the Outstanding Book Award for the International Communication Association. It's just a terrific book, uh, and, and again, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation.
0: You've been listening to New Books in Communications. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.